Why do we believe that? Because the Bible says so. Amen? We believe what we believe because we believe the Bible. We love the Bible, whether the Bible uh, encourages us. And, 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 you know, every part of the Bible, whether we like it or not, whether we appreciate it or not, every word in Scripture is for our benefit and for our encouragement. You say, well, Brother Steve, there's times I read the Bible and there's certain passages in the Bible that seems to be getting on to me more than it is encouraging me. Well, that's encouragement. God wants to get on to you occasionally to let you know where you're out of line, to bring you back in line, because there is a spout where the blessings flow out, and that spout is called obedience. If you want the blessings of God, you be obedient to God, and God will bless your socks off. I promise you that. But you have to stay under the spout where the blessings flow out, and that is living a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we began what we'll be continuing today, talking about the marks of a healthy church, uh, the marks, the indicators, uh, those things, if you will, that indicate that the church is truly healthy. And we saw that the first indicator, the, the first mark of a healthy church, is the right preaching of the Word of God. You say, well, Brother Steve, can you preach the Word of God wrong? Duh! Yes, you can. You have to preach the Word of God one way and one way only. The way it's written. The way it's written. We are warned. We are warned in the book of Revelation that we are not to add to or take from Scripture. And if we choose to add to or take from Scripture, there's a warning there that your name will be removed from the book of life. We don't add to or take from the Word of God. We, we read the Bible as we see it printed. We uh, learn from the Bible as we see it printed. We obey the Word of God as we find it printed. And we love the Word of God. If you love the Word of God, shout amen. 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 I know you do. And that encourages me as your pastor. I know that I have the blessings of pastoring a church that loves the Word of God. And believe it or not, in our culture, believe it or not, in our culture, Less and less churches love the Word of God. We saw again the, the right preaching of the Word of God is the first mark of a healthy church. And the second, the second mark, the second indicator uh, of a healthy church is the, the proper, the biblical administration of the ordinances of the church. Last week, spent a lot of time talking about water baptism. I feel like we adequately covered the ordinance of baptism. So today, we're going to move on to the Lord's Supper, sometimes known as communion, and the ever-popular subject of church discipline. Everybody say, yay! Sure, sure, you convinced me of that. So let's just move ahead. The first thing I want us to look at together this morning is the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper, sometimes known as communion. That word communion starts out with co, which means it's a together thing. It's a together thing. And of course, the word union at the end of that word is a together thing. It is when we come together as believers and we come together in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to celebrate His love for us by celebrating His sacrifice for our sins. 
and that is the Lord's Supper. Now, while baptism is an ordinance that is to be observed in which the Bible commands, uh, only one time, only one time, biblically speaking, you only need to be baptized one time in your life, and that is when you truly surrender your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive Him as Lord and Savior. When you're regenerated, when you're born again, you are commanded to be baptized by immersion in water as a public expression of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But whereas uh, communion, communion is supposed to be celebrated on an ongoing basis by those baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering, remembering how we got where we are, remembering how that we become the saints of God, the children of God, remembering how that our sins have been washed away by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Calvary, on the, on the cross of Calvary, how that we've been saved and, and, and redeemed and regenerated by the washing of the Word of God and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord's Supper, Jesus instituted, Jesus began this ordinance of the church, and He instituted His Supper the night before He went to the cross. We see this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit, of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, in addition, Jesus calls his followers to do this in remembrance of me. Do this remembering how much I love you. Do this remembering how much I care about you. Do this remembering that I left the splendors of heaven and came to earth and lived the perfect life of which you could not live. I lived it on your behalf. I went to the cross of Calvary and died a death that you could not die. I went to the cross of Calvary and I paid a debt you could not pay. And I was resurrected gloriously by the Father in which you could not be resurrected on the last day except I be resurrected first. Remember, Jesus says, remember how you became a person. Remember how you became a person in the kingdom of God, a child of God. Remember me when you do this, when you do this. Jesus was showing that it was intended to be done after his death and after his resurrection. And so immediately in the book of Acts and in the book of First and Second Corinthians and such, we see the church practicing communion on an ongoing basis, doing the very thing that Jesus said to do. So it poses the question, it poses the question, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Well, I think I've covered that. Uh, pretty decently so far, but let's go just a little deeper. What is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? So, so what are we to think about the Lord's Supper? What are we to believe about the Lord's Supper? 
what does the Lord's Supper, what does communion signify? Well, there's several things, and they're all symbolic. Say symbolic. That's important to know. That's very important to know. There are several things symbolized in the Lord's Supper. The, the first thing that is symbolized effectively in the Lord's Supper is the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to remember that He died for our sins. And apart from Him dying for our sins, our sins are every, ever, ever before us and ever upon us, and there is no forgiveness of sin. And as you know, the book of Romans tells us very directly and very plainly, the wages of sin, that is, the payment you receive for sinning against God without forgiveness, is eternal damnation in the lake of fire. We commemorate Christ's death. The Lord's Supper, communion, symbolizes Christ's death. Now, when we celebrate or when we participate in communion, here's what we're doing. We symbolize the death of Jesus because our actions, our actions, that's why we participate, that's why we're hands-on in communion. Our actions is what they do, is they're a picture of His death a picture of his death. As we hold that cup, as we hold that bread, we're symbolizing the bread representing his body, the, 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 the grape juice symbolizing the blood that was shed for us. So the broken bread, again, symbolizes his broken body. And the cup symbolizes the pouring out, the shedding of his blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And not just any blood, perfect blood. And before Christ, there had been no one perfect. And since Christ, contrary to your belief, there is none perfect. Jesus is the only perfect human being that ever lived on planet earth. And it was his blood and his blood alone that could atone for our sins and bring the forgiveness of sins. The second thing that uh, the, the Lord's Supper symbolizes is the believer's participation in the crucified Christ. Now let this soak in. Not only do we celebrate, not only do we participate, not only do we commemorate Christ's death, but it symbolizes me as a believer and you as a believer, it symbolizes the believer's participation in the crucified Christ. Jesus commanded all the disciples. Did you notice there in the words of Christ in Matthew's gospel, he said, all of you take and eat. In other words, participate. Participate. When we individually, today we will celebrate communion. And as we're celebrating communion today, when we individually reach out and take the bread or the cup for ourselves, we symbolize that we participate and share in the benefits found in Christ's redemption. Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross of Calvary. He died. He was buried. But now Christ is what? He is alive. He is risen. He has been resurrected from the dead. We too was born into this world dead in our trespasses and sins. And when Jesus came along and sought us out and found us and regenerated us and caused us to be reborn, we too was resurrected from deadness of trespasses and sins and brought into the glorious life and the glorious light of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the benefits found in Christ's 
redemption. Not only have we been forgiven of our sins, we have been set free from our sins to live a holy life while here on planet earth, and we have the promise of heaven. How many is glad for the promise of heaven today? Say amen. So we participate in the crucified Christ. Not only do we celebrate Christ's death, but we participate in the crucifixion of Christ, the crucified Christ, but we also receive spiritual nourishment. This thing's arguing with me. We, we receive spiritual nourishment. Now, just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, how many likes food other than me? Yeah, it shows. We know the ones who like to eat. That's okay. I love to eat. But just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, the, the, the elements of communion, they again, they symbolize the nourishment and the refreshment that Christ gives our souls. Did you know without spiritual nourishment, your soul is dead? Absolutely dead. Spiritual nourishment. And not only spiritual nourishment, but the unity of believers. The unity of believers. When Christians participate in the Lord's Supper together, we're providing a clear sign of our unity one with another. Now, when it comes time for communion today, uh, I encourage you, if you're a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Participate with us today. But, but Pastor Steve, I am not a member of this fellowship. Well, you may not be a member of this fellowship, but as we have taught clearly, also the universal church. If you are a baptized believer and you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you belong to the Lord's church. Can I get an amen? And if you belong to the Lord's church, then you can participate in communion wherever believers gather. I believe that with all my heart, don't you? Now, there's churches that don't participate in that. There's some churches that say they have closed communion. You have to be a baptized believer and a committed member of their local fellowship or you can't experience communion with them. It's simply because they don't understand the Bible. They don't understand Scripture. But today, uh, in just a few minutes, uh, following this message today, we're going to celebrate communion together. But we have to come to the table of communion with great caution because what we're celebrating, we're celebrating the death, resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the reason it takes on that word communion, it means that we are co-laboring together, that we are a unified body of believers, that we love one another and that we uplift one another and we encourage one another. And, and, and I just caution you, when you're out of fellowship, when you're in sin and not in favor, you should abstain from participating in communion because Paul warned the Corinthian believers, when, when you're not in right fellowship with God, you make a mockery of communion when you participate, and God will kill you for that. You heard me right. You heard me right. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, that person will reap. And if you make a mockery of the death, burial, and resurrection of God's only Son... God is liable to kill you. That's what the Bible teaches. Paul said many sleep. In other words, many are in the grave because they've made a mockery of God's Son. So I just caution you. I caution you. 
Each and every time we take communion, it's a time of inventory. It's a time that of introspect. It's a time that we examine our own hearts and see where we are in our journey of faith, in our obedient walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a tune-up time. That's why we do this at least once a month here at Hope in Christ Fellowship. On a monthly basis, we slow down and say, okay, it's time for a tune-up. Heavenly Father, where am I at with you? Heavenly Father, where am I at with my brothers and sisters in Christ? And if there's any fractures, if there's any brokenness there, this is the time to tune it up. This is the time to get it right so that we don't make a mockery of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we exalt Him as we humble ourselves before Him and humble ourselves before one another. So uh, a great discussion comes out of this. A great discussion comes out of this. Holy cow. I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't have a slide for it. And I thought I had a slide for it, so I had a moment there, okay? How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Do you remember the parting words of the Lord Jesus Christ? I am with you always, even to the end of this age. And then we know for certain at the end of this age, we will forever be in his face-to-face presence in a place called heaven. But in the meantime, Jesus is present with us here today. Do you believe that? If you believe Scripture, you believe he's present with us today. Uh, He's not only present with us, he's present in you and he's present in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. And there's been very, very, very different views about Christ's relation to his supper. And and they come from these words right here. Jesus said this, this is my body. And when Jesus said, this is my body, he, he was speaking to his disciples and he was speaking to us today and every generation of believers that has ever lived or ever will live. But those four words, this is my body, are probably are perhaps the four most disputed words in all of the Bible. These disputes all boil down to the meaning of one simple two-letter word, is. Say is. Now that's hard to believe that that little two-letter word could cause such great debate and division among God's people. Is, that little two-letter word is, can indicate Identity, attribute, cause, resemblance, or fulfillment. And the debate is between those who argue that I-S is means identity and those who defend that is means resemblance. Now stay with me. Before we consider three main views that most believers hold... Let me give you a quick contrast to how the word is is used in identity and then symbolic resemblance. Identity, by using the word is, identity, by using the word is, this is my hand. Does anybody in the room dispute that this is a hand? Didn't think so. Does anybody in the room dispute that this is my hand? All right, so we're clear, aren't we? We're clear on that. 
But what about symbolic resemblance? Symbolic resemblance. In James chapter 3, verse 6, James says the tongue is a fire. Now, I know Canaan the other day was experimenting with some peppers. And symbolically, resemblance, his tongue became as hot as fire. But was his tongue ever literally fire? No. So you see, this is my hand is, is identifying that this is my hand. But is can also represent symbolic resemblance. Now, now that I've thoroughly prepared you through my excellent English course, did anybody learn anything there? The, the Lord did it because I'm not that kind of teacher, okay? I, I cheated my way all the way through English and lit, and, and the teacher, she watches her broadcasts from time to time, and I've commented on Facebook and said, I'm sorry, Miss Ann, I wasn't listening. If God had gave me a little foresight and said, you're going to preach the gospel, literature would have been my class. I would have dug in there and forgot everything else. I, you know, I'm pretty good at math, but I would have said math doesn't matter because God will keep up with his own. But I do know how to pronounce words and speak, okay? So now that I've given you that English lesson, let's look at the different views for the Lord's Supper elements. I, I don't have slides, so look in your listening guide. And these are some big words that I would have better pronounced had I paid attention in English lit. Transubstantiation. that close? All right, y'all got close. Now, Roman Catholics teach this view. Somebody said recently, Brother Steve, you've been picking on the Roman Catholics a lot lately. I ain't picking on nobody. I'm just telling the truth. And, and there's nothing wrong with telling the truth. This asserts, this teaching asserts, that is, they believe that when they participate in communion, that the bread and the wine miraculously become the body and the blood of Christ in their essence. Now, here's, here, here, here's how to better explain that. That's the difference between identity and symbolic resemblance. So the other day when Canaan was eating those peppers, and bless his heart, he thought he was eating the hotter one first. He thought he was eating the mild one first, and he ate the hottest one first. So he went from zero to 60 in two seconds. And, 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 and I, she had it captured on video. I watched the video and what he did. You know, he didn't ease into it. He was just like, crunch, chewed that thing up. Now, for a moment, Canaan believed as the Roman Catholics do. He believed with all of his heart that his tongue miraculously became fire in that moment. He believed that. But later in the day, it calmed down and he, he believed identity and symbolic resemblance. Now, again, the Catholics believe that when you come into a mass and, and you're receiving communion, that for real, I don't know how to better say that, for real, I mean identifying as that, that wafer of bread that we'll take here in a few minutes, they believe that wafer of bread truly, really, literally, in its essence, becomes the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a symbol. It's not a symbol. It's, it, it's a piece of Christ's body, and they are literally eating him. 
And they believe that when they take the cup and they take the wine, they believe, they believe that they are drinking the literal blood out of the veins of Jesus Christ. That's what they believe. In Mass, when the priest says, this is my body, the bread becomes the literal physical body of Christ. And for them, is, I-S, is, signifies identity. So they understand that the Lord's Supper to be a physical representation of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He is dying again in their presence for their sins. Consubstantiation. Martin Luther, the reformer, the great reformer, he put forward this view, and and most Lutherans uh, still adhere to it today. Now, their teaching is a bit different. They teach that although the bread and wine do not become the literal body and the blood of Jesus Christ, that the physical body of Christ is present in and under the physical bread and the wine. In other words, he's very near to it, but it's not his. The analogy here is like water in a sponge, the idea being that Christ's body is somehow contained in those elements. This view arose from Luther's perception of a requirement to take this is my body statement in some sense, literally. And then you come down to us rednecks. We believe spiritual presence. We believe symbolism. And these are the views held by most Protestant churches, and including Hope in Christ Fellowship. Here's what we believe. We believe that the bread and the juice symbolize. Say symbolize. It's just a remembrance. Jesus finished his commandment by saying, do this in remembrance of me. The bread and the juice symbolizes the body and the blood of Christ. What they do, they give us a visible sign of the fact of his true, though spiritual Presence. We know today that Christ is present with us, don't we? But, but He is not in the form of a body that He can be seen and touched. He, how, you know, if it came in that sense, how could it be in every single one of us? See, as believers, He is inside of us through His Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He can be everywhere He wants to be at any time. So, communion, as we see it, is a visible sermon Communion is a visible sermon where those who are believers feed on Christ by faith. Now then, who? Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Again, this is in your listening guide. This is in your listening guide. Three requirements for receiving the Lord's Supper appropriately. Remember we said the the marks of a healthy church is when we do things biblically, when we do things correctly. So how, how do we correctly participate in communion, the Lord's Supper? How do we do it appropriate? Number one, you must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Steve, that's harsh. Why, why can non-believers not participate in communion? Because they're not part of the body of Christ yet. Right? We, we say yet because we hope they will be. Can I get an Amen. Amen. We want to see every we want to see every person on the planet come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we not? But this is a privilege. 
This is for the family of God. This is for the family of God. You must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are in participation with our Savior. He is our Savior and we are His children. That's why you must be a believer in order to participate in communion. Number two, you must be a baptized believer because baptism is a symbol of beginning the Christian life and entrance into the church while the Lord's Supper is a symbol of continuing the Christian life in the context of the church. And I'm not trying to be hard on you here, but I teach this point because I believe it's biblical. I believe with all of my heart that the very first act The very first act of obedience any new believer can demonstrate toward the Lord is water baptism. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized. Did he not? Repent and be baptized. So baptism is of utter importance. Now, as we taught last week, baptism does not save you. It cannot save you. It will not save you. But it is you telling the world through water baptism you have been saved. You have been saved. So if you are saved and the very first step of obedience is water baptism, then you need to be baptized before you participate in communion because if you've never been baptized, whether in ignorance or rebellion, you're not in communion with Christ, are you? No, you're living in rebellion. Number three, you must come to the Lord's table. You must come into the presence of the congregation in a spirit of self-examination. And here's what a lot of church folks do. Well, I don't know why she participated today. Let me tell you where she's been. Amen? Don't tell me it ain't happened. Say self-examination. Just to make sure we're clear on it, say self-examination. Now, quietly to yourself, say, I think that preacher's talking to me. And me. And me. You must come in a spirit of self-examination and must be in fellowship with others of the body in a way that reflects Christ's love and Christ's character. As I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner being careless of our sin. Let's move on. Church discipline. Church discipline. I'll just be honest with you. I don't know many modern-day churches that practice church discipline. And I think for the reason being, they're scared of the Word. Now, if you're in the, right, if you're in the wrong frame of thinking... When you say church discipline, that that just gives off this fragrance of being mean, doesn't it? Well, but if we believe the Bible, discipline is a positive word. Can I get an amen? God disciplines the children that he loves. So discipline and love goes hand in hand. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, I hope you discipline your children. 
Because if you, if you love them, you must discipline them. I, now, I, I did not say spank, whip. I didn't, I didn't say how you discipline them. And, and I definitely didn't say you mistreat them. And I definitely didn't say you're mean to them. And I didn't say you abuse them. Discipline is a word that looks and sounds a lot like disciple. The correct way to discipline a child, the correct way to discipline a brother and sister in Christ is to come along beside them and in a loving manner approach them out of love and there's no doubt in their mind that you're there because you love them and you're wanting to help them and you're, you're wanting to disciple them. You, you, you want to help bring them closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. But how many knows they must participate? So church discipline is not going after somebody. Church discipline is not being mean. Church discipline is not being ugly. Church discipline is not being unloving. Church discipline is all about love. Say love. So it's often been assumed that the Lord's Supper necessarily entails church discipline. Our fourth qualification of a pure and a healthy church is a church that practices loving church discipline. We disciple one another. Now sadly, sadly, John 3.16 used to be the verse that most everyone on the planet knew. I mean, I can go into nursing homes today and, and whether I'm visiting one-on-one with an individual or in a group setting... I can say, hey, let's say John 3.16 together. And even elderly people suffering with dementia or Alzheimer's, they can get most of John 3.16 out. But John 3.16 has taken second place to another popular verse this day and time. In the culture in which we live today, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 has become the new popular verse. Don't judge me. Bible says, don't judge me. You're judging me. You're judging me. But as unpopular as the idea of church discipline is, Christians are called to be discerning and Christians are called to protect the church from those who would remain under its banner while continuing to live a sinful lifestyle. Most churches are brought down because of sin. Sinful lifestyles of their members. If you love the church, you will love the people and you will love them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if they refuse to love Christ more than they love their sin, then we have to deal with that in a loving, restorative way. God has always, always, always called His people to be holy. Brother Steve, why has God called His people to be holy? Because God is holy. In Leviticus, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation, say all. Jesus, in his words to his disciples in communion, said, all of you take and eat. Did he not? Speaking to the entire body. 
Here, Moses speaking on God's behalf, speaking to Moses so that Moses can represent him to his people. He said, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. Say holy. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Yet we have many examples of God's people, particularly in the Old Testament, rebelling in idolatry and unrighteousness, profaning the name of God. The clean and the unclean are never to be mixed. We know that, especially studying the book of Leviticus. What happens when we sin? Well, mom and dad, remember mom and dad? Adam and Eve in the garden? Maybe grandma and grandpa? They were banished from Eden. Why? Because why? Because of sin. Because of sin. And their unhindered fellowship with God was what? Broken and lost. And through Moses, God gave His law to His people, the nation of Israel, teaching them this very principle through discipline. Through discipline. And membership in God's family has many privileges, doesn't it? If you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be here today. You believe this. Membership in God's family has many privileges, but we must resist sin, all sin, at any level, in every level. Can I get an amen? This is going just like I thought it was going to go. Baptism, yay, preacher. Communion, yay, preacher. Church discipline. It shouldn't surprise us. It should not surprise us at all as New Testament believers. Seeing discipline being commanded, commanded to happen in the New Testament church. The Apostle Paul in chastising the church as a whole in Corinth, he was chastising them because they failed to exercise church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? We're not talking about those outside the church, are we? We're talking about those inside the church. Fellow believers. What, what have I to do with judging them? They, hey, they're lost. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're supposed to sin because that's what sinners do. We're not judging them. You know, I, I, I get tickled in a negative fashion when, when Christians rail on the world for being sinful. Duh! Well, they're acting evil. They're evil. They're being sinful. They're sinners. Well, they don't think like us Christians. Yeah, because their brain is dead in its trespasses and sins. Well, they don't love like Christians love. Thank God for that. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Everybody say amen. Yes. Is it not those inside the church who you are? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't judge me. Kevin, don't judge me. 
Don't judge me. Even the church people are saying that. Don't judge me. Paul says we're to judge one another. Here's where we get off track. We don't judge one another based on our standards. We use God's book. And you will know a tree by the fruit it bears. So we are not to judge one another, but we have full right to inspect one another's fruit in a loving manner, in a loving manner, so that we're encouraging holy living to bring glory and honor to God. Can I get an amen? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Look here. Look here. Look here. It's God's business. It's God and God alone's responsibility to judge the people outside the church. Would you kindly get off of God's throne and give it back to Him today? It's not your place to judge the world. You can't even judge you good enough. You've got to have help. Is that not what we're learning? I cannot judge myself enough to keep me straight. I need you to help judge me to help keep me straight. We've got all we can do and more with one another. Leave them alone. The only thing you need to be telling them is God loves you. Jesus died for you. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. God judges those outside. What are we supposed to do? We are to purge the evil person from among ourselves. So there was this gentleman, we'll call him loosely, there was a man in the church of Corinth who was living an ongoing sinful lifestyle, and I guess he was prominent, he was probably a good giver, he might have been a well-thought-of man in the community, and, and, and these people had got it in their minds, if we can get the right people in here, it'll draw other people in here. Listen, if you're building a church, On other people, you ain't building a church. How do you build a church? You build a church by inviting Jesus Christ to be the center of that church. And, and if Jesus is the middle of that church, and if you lift Jesus up, the Bible says, if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw what? Yeah, Jesus is the drawing factor of the church. And if he's not, it's not a church. But for whatever reason, the church at Corinth, they valued this man more than they valued God. And they refused to deal with him. And Paul is admonishing them. Now, while formative teaching, what I'm doing right here, what I, what I do here every Sunday morning is I am executing church discipline. Am I not? The purpose of my preaching is to disciple believers, to bring discipline to your life, to correct our wrongs, to instill in us right thinking through right preaching, and that is discipling people. We do that from the pulpit. We do that in classes. We do that as individuals. We do that in many ways. So while formative teaching is considered church discipline and a very necessary part of the church, we specifically speak about corrective Teaching one-on-one with one another. Now, what is the purposes 
of church discipline. What are the purposes of church discipline? Why practice church discipline? I think I've covered that already, but let's go just a little further. Many would ask, and many, I, I, I said many on purpose, many would ask, in our day, in the culture in which we're living today, doesn't it detract from God's love rather than enhance it? No. No. Shouldn't our focus be on mercy and not judgment? In the church, we should sow mercy and we should show judgment. Can I get an amen? Let me give you some biblical reasons. Why do we believe that? Because the Bible teaches it. Let me give you some biblical reasons why we as the church must follow God's Word in practicing church discipline. First of all, for restoration. Say restoration. The goal, the, the goal of any Bible-believing, God-loving, Jesus-serving church is never, is never to get rid of people. Can I get an amen? The goal of church discipline is always restoration. Restoration. We love you. We, we, we know the path you're going down, and it's not going to end well. And we're trying to make you aware of this, and we're making you aware not because we're mad at you, not because we dislike you, but because we love you, and we're trying to help you here. Would you let us help you? Why should we practice church discipline for restoration and reconciliation of the believer who is going astray? Sin hinders fellowship. Can I get an amen? Sin is what breaks fellowship. Sin hinders fellowship with God among believers as well as between individual believers. And in the case of a confessing Christian who is unrepentant in their sin, it's commanded of the church to admonish them, to address them, to encourage them in the hope of bringing about repentance in their life and restoration of fellowship. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. That's all we can do. Have you not learned in life, you cannot make anyone do anything they don't want to do? Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. And if repentance doesn't happen, then love and responsibility demand that the members of that person's fellowship, the members as a whole, my job is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. It's your responsibility to carry out church discipline it's the responsibility, demand that the members of that person's fellowship not ignore and not gloss over sin in this person's life, but to exclude them from the fellowship. If you get to the point that you've been to them and they don't listen, and you've prayed and took another loving brother or sister with you and attempted once again to reconcile and restore them, and they ignore that again, then you have no other biblical grounds than to bring them before the church and say, hey, Steve Looper's out here doing this, this, this. It's sin. He admits it's sin. He has no goal of, of turning from that sin. And in order to glorify God, we've got to deal with him. And at that point in time, they are removed from the membership of the church. They're not removed from your heart. They're not removed from your prayer list. They're not removed from your thoughts. Go home and Google Achan. Achan, A-K-I-N in the Old Testament. Read his story. 
You'll believe in church discipline when you finish that book. While church discipline sounds harsh to our ears, it's the most loving thing we can do in these circumstances. Say love. Amen. Discipline. Discipline is one way God calls us to love each other. Say love. Discipline is one way God calls us to love each other and should be done in a loving attitude, seeking the best for the person before God. Let me give you three scriptures. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Say loves. What does God do to the ones he loves? Is that what the book says? And he chastises every son whom he receives. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone, say anyone. Brother Steve, does this include you? I'm at the top of the list. Move me to the top of the list. If anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual, those that belong to the house of God, those who who have been saved and born again, those who are spiritual should do what? Restore. Restore him in a spirit of what? Keep watch on yourself. We got two eyes, don't we? Keep one on yourself and keep one on others. Because if you ain't right, you can't keep anybody else right. Can I get an amen? It's what we're taught right here. It's what we're taught right here. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5. When all else fails, we've done everything the book says to do. We've prayed, we've loved, we've encouraged, we've confronted. We've confronted twice with witnesses. We brought it before the church. And they're like, do what you want to do. I'm staying where I'm staying. I'm doing what I'm doing. We're left to do one thing and one thing only. It's what the Apostle Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians 5. five. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's serious. That's serious. You have to look a brother or a sister in the eye and say, and I'm serious about this church. Can you imagine? Can you imagine looking a brother or sister in the eye and say, listen, you have drove me to this point. All I can do based on what our Father has taught us to do, I've got to turn you over to the enemy. I have to break fellowship with you. And you have to leave our sheepfold knowing that the wolf is out there. But God loves you enough to let the wolf eat you alive in hopes that in your dying words you'll confess your sin and turn back to the Father. That's hard. That's hard. That's Bible. That's Bible. Church, listen to me closely. In the day and hour in which we live, and in the culture that we find ourselves embedded in right now, we've got to practice this. We've got to practice this. The church is under the gun. 
And I can tell you what the world would say. If, if, if anybody of the world watches this sermon today through our online ministry, I will be accused of hate speech. Free and clear. But I have tried with my hardest and with all of my heart this morning to present church discipline to you and any, anyone that would care to hear it. It's nothing but love and reconciliation and restoration. I hope that's what you've heard today. Have you heard that today? That's what I have tried my best to present to you today. B, why should we practice church discipline for restoration and reconciliation of other believers to keep sin from spreading to others? What I tolerate at my house will spread to your house. And when it spreads into this congregation, it'll go from this table to that table to that table to that row to that table to that table. And what you allow once will break out as an epidemic. And a sinning church is a sinking church. Why must we practice church discipline? To keep sin from spreading to others. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble and by it many become defiled. The great theologian, the great theologian, Barney Fife, said, nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud, dandy. 1 Timothy 5.20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of everybody so that the rest may stand in fear. C, to protect the purity of the church and the honor of Christ. Our church must be kept pure. Our fellowship must be kept pure. And Christ must continue to be honored. Romans 2.24, for as it is written, where is it written, church? Why do we believe that? For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles. Because of who? Because of the church. When the church is not the church, the Gentiles, that is the lost world around us, say, I have no interest in church. They are no different than we are. In many cases, they're exactly right. They're exactly right. Paul said, now you can hear this in his language. You, you, you can hear his heart in this language. It's actually been, it, it's, got, it's got its way back to me. He's hundreds of miles away. They don't have telephone or telegraph. It's been reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst those who are dead in the trespasses of sin. The pagans, those who worship Satan. You are allowing in the church what Satan worshipers don't even practice. For a man has his father's wife. And in addition to this, 
You're arrogant. You're proud. Ought you not rather mourn? Yes. Yes. Let him who has done this be removed from you. Number three, we're going to hit this so fast it'll make your head spin. You ready? We're going to hit this and go. Church government. Church government. And let me let you know where we are in this series. So today we finish with all of this portion, and I've got two, maybe three more messages, and we're going to cover the doctrine of eschatology, that is, the doctrine of the end times. Be very interesting. Be very interesting. But that's where we are in this series, and then we'll be done with this series. Why do we believe that? What does Scripture say about how the church is to be run? What does the Bible say about how the church is to be governed? Number one, it's Christ's church. Say it's the Lord's church. Say it one more time and convince me of it. It's the Lord's church and Christ is the head. Can I get an amen? Amen. And God has established earthly authority through Scripture for the earthly government of the earthly church. Now, there's generally three forms. We teach this in our hope classes, don't we, folks? Those of you that's been through the hope class, this is going to be a repeat for you. Three forms of church government that rules almost every church on the planet today. The first one is Episcopalian. And when I say Episcopalian, yes, this does cover the Episcopal church, but there is Episcopalian government in churches other than the Episcopal church. Say that three times fast. That's why I'm Baptist. Just so you know. Just so you know. Baptist. Two syllables. So the Episcopalian system gives final authority to who runs the church who governs the church to an archbishop, one, one man, who presides over other bishops underneath him with lesser authority, who then preside over various local churches in an area known as a diocese. And the case made for such a system is that the apostles were given the authority over the churches. The original disciples were given authority over the new churches that were being planted in the book of Acts. And so their successors who who were seen to be bishops will do the same. And this form of government was increasingly used in the second century and continues today. That doesn't cover us, does it? No, it doesn't. The second form of government, we've just got three. The second form of government... There we go. Thank you, Philip. Presbyterian. The Presbyterian system gives final authority. Now, now when I say Presbyterian, you think about the Presbyterian church again, right? But this covers more than the Presbyterian church because there are churches who are not Presbyterian who uses this form of government. Again, we're talking about three forms of church government, not three denominations specifically. The Presbyterian system gives final authority to a group of elders, the General Assembly or Board of Elders, which presides over other groups of elders known as the the Presbytery with lesser authority down to the elders of a local church, which is called a session. And these elders serve as representatives of the church. 
And the case made for this system is derived from certain principles in Scripture, such as the authority given to elders in Hebrews 13 and Acts chapter 15, and the conventional wisdom of cooperating with other churches. And then we come to the congregational, the last one, my final point this morning, church government congregational. So the congregational system leaves each local church autonomous from other local churches. That's us. That's us. We are an autonomous, an independent group of believers that meet at Hope in Christ Fellowship. And the authority of our affairs are left with the church as a whole. With the church as a whole. The responsibility of discipline and doctrine lies finally with the congregation. And while others practice the Episcopalian and Presbyterian models, we find that congregationalism is the most biblical form of government for local churches. Now, in the New Testament, in the Bible, congregations are specifically given responsibilities to rule on such matters as disputes between members, matters of doctrine, matters of church discipline, and matters of church membership. And if we look at the letters in the New Testament, uh, most of them are written to churches, not to church leaders. Now, when you read the epistles, when you read the New Testament, you'll see that some of those are wrote specifically to a leader, but others are written to a congregation as a whole. And the idea that there is a priesthood of believers, and I believe that firmly, I believe in the priesthood of every believer, strongly suggests that the church is directly under Christ rather than a hierarchy of bishops. Say an amen right there. So where does the biblical office of elder fit into the congregational system? Boy, I'm glad you asked. We see many examples of the local church being the final court of appeals in discipline and doctrine. And we see exhortations for the church to obey its leaders, Hebrews 13, 17. And the leaders of that local congregation are the elders. The elders are not given the final rule, but they lead the church by providing oversight, teaching, and prayer. We, we teach all of this in our membership class. Not all matters need to be decided by the whole church, but not all matters need to be decided by the elders. In 1 Corinthians 6, we see that the church permitted to hand certain matters over to subgroups of the congregation. Now here's where we wind this up. God deliberately, God Himself deliberately set up His church to better portray His glory to a fallen world. When we do church God's way, we preach to the world God's grace and God's glory and God's love. And folks, that's why this pastor, that's why this elder has his heart set on doing everything we do according to Scripture and according to the Word of God. Do I always get it right? No. If I don't get it right, whose responsibility is it to, to, to call me to the rug? Absolutely. And vice versa. And vice versa. We're in this together. Can you say that? Say we're in this together. And we're going to heaven together. Amen. Amen and amen. Let's pray.